in the early church, in the first century, some Hebrews had begun to take their eyes off Jesus Christ and to fix their eyes on their hardships. That's why the last time we looked at this passage, we saw right at the beginning, Hebrews 12 here, the exhortation to look to Jesus. And then in verse 3, consider Jesus. And so when these Hebrew Christians first came to Christ, the Savior had filled their lives with joy. Those baby Christians began, though, to be assaulted by various hardships in their life. In fact, uh, one of the things mentioned in the book of Hebrews is uh, some had gone to prison for their faith. And as a result of a Jew turning to Christ, some of their friendships dissolved. Uh, They were no longer welcome in the synagogue. Some of their families had funerals for them, even though they're still alive. Some of them lost their jobs. Others were assaulted by various domestic stress in their life as the husband and wife relationship became strained and and some of them probably even just totally dissolved. And so they were learning that their newfound faith was not providing their best life now. They hadn't read Joel Austin's book. And in fact... What they did realize, that they, they suffered reversals in their life and accidents and illness and even death, just like everybody else. So coming to Christ doesn't solve all of those physical things. Some of them were getting distracted. Others stumbled, and tragically, a few of them had quit altogether. And so this is a really important passage. I love this passage You should be encouraged by this beautiful truth we see here because some of you are kind of like the Hebrews of old. Some of you maybe have started to take your eyes off Christ, and some of you are turning your eyes to your hardships. Some of you have maybe even quit the race, or at least are tempted to quit the race. This is an endurance race we've been called to here, as verse 1 says, let us run with endurance. It's a long-distance race. It is a marathon, and it's hard, and you might even feel like you've hit the wall, so to speak. Not literal wall. If you know running language, it just means it's usually about, in miles, it's usually around the 20-mile mark where the guys just want to quit. Or maybe somewhere around that 35-kilometer mark where they just want to quit. It gets really, really hard. Some of you might be distracted. Some of you might feel like quitting. Some of you may have stumbled along the way. So listen to the words of the living God because this is encouraging. Uh, See, the Hebrews are really kind of like a microcosm of the modern-day church. And so it's important that we listen as the Holy Spirit is attempting to encourage us here. So let's let's read from Hebrews 12. Let's actually start reading verse 3. Even though we looked at verse 3 last time. Let's start reading in verse 3. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son and daughters. I just added the daughters part. Do not regard lightly the discipline of Yahweh, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought for it with tears. That ends the passage for today from Romans, or sorry, Hebrews 12. So basically we have the same proposition as this text is continuing from the first part of chapter 12 here, that God wants you to faithfully run your spiritual race. You'll see it on the screen here. God wants you to faithfully run your spiritual race, and I will tack on to the end of that, that he wants you to keep going all the way to the end. Don't give up. So we have two godly habits of an endurance runner today to look at. God wants you to be an endurance runner, and he gives us some habits that we need to practice and be that will help us to do what it says right there in verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's what we're called to do, be endurance runners. It's a long-distance race. It can be difficult. So we need to practice some habits of endurance runners. Number one, here's the first habit of an endurance runner. Trust God through all trials and hardships. Trust God through all trials and hardships. As you run this long-distance race, this and you're striving to endure and persevere, you can start to question yourself. When it becomes painful, you start to question yourself, wondering, why are you doing this? Reminds me of one of the long-distance challenges I did, which was the Lake Taupo Cycle Challenge. I did it a couple times. By the way, that's the definition of insanity, right? You, you You do the same thing a second time, expecting a different outcome. It was actually worse the second time. <clears throat> Dumb. 160 kilometers of massive hills. If you've ever been all the way around Lake Taupo, there's just massive hills. It's even hard in your car. Try doing it on a push bike. <clears throat> but anyway, I, I remember I was somewhere like, uh, I don't know, uh, I gone, going anti-clockwise past Terangi and before you get to Suicide Hill there, which is about a three, four kilometer size hill that you have to climb up after you've just killed yourself most of the day. Anyway, I remember I remember trying to just, I was like in the lowest gear trying to get up this hill, and there was a sign over there at the side of the road that said, remember, you paid to do this. <laughs> Thank you. I needed that encouragement. And, and so at that point, you know, you're starting to question yourself. Well, why am I doing, I, I need something to hold on to. Well, you need to hold on to God. Trust God through all trials and hardships. So we need to understand here, and and we need to believe this truth here, my friends. What do we need to believe? We need to believe that God disciplines for good purposes. Do you really believe that? Do you believe when you're going through a hardship or a trial that there's a good purpose in that? Because notice what it says right there in verse 10. What what does verse 10 say? He disciplines us for our good. 
So there's three purposes, three good purposes of why God does this. And this is coming from various parts of Scripture. So number one, why does God discipline us? God's discipline corrects our sin. It corrects our sin. It's, it's a corrective process that God is doing in your life. Look what God says about his children, referring to Israel here. Psalm 89 says this. Look at this. Forsake my law, God says, and do not walk in my judgments. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression or their sin. And what does he do? He, he visits their transgression with what? The rod. And their iniquity with stripes. So, that's one side, punishment. God is correcting us through discipline. But the other side is there's this promise of faithfulness that God gives to his people, and it's called a covenant. And so in the the next verses in Psalm 89, look what it says here. God says, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. God is always faithful. And He's always good. There's a good purpose in your trial and hardship. So when God disciplines, please don't feel rejected. He hasn't rejected you. In fact, He may be correcting you. There's a second reason, a second good purpose why God might be disciplining you. It's sometimes to prevent our sin. God disciplines to prevent sin in our lives. For example, let's think of the Apostle Paul. God gave the Apostle Paul a thorn in the flesh because God is just a a horrible, ogre, mean God, right? No. He had a specific purpose, and the Bible actually tells you why in 2 Corinthians 12. And it was to keep Paul from exalting himself. In other words, God didn't want Paul to get this big head and become boastful and proud and arrogant because God had a lot of amazing things he was going to do through him. And so God allowed the messenger of Satan to attack Paul, not because his apostle was proud, but it was for the purpose of keeping him from becoming proud. And so the thorn in the flesh was sent to protect his spiritual well-being. And Paul did not enjoy that thorn, whatever it was. And so what did Paul do? He pleaded earnestly with the Lord. In fact, on three occasions, 2 Corinthians 12 says, three occasions he prayed for God to remove that thorn. And as a result, God's answer in his prayer was, No, you get to keep the thorn, Paul. <laughs> And what did Paul do? He gladly accepted that hardship, that trial in his life, because the Bible says that God's power was perfected in his weakness. He learned that not only that thorn, but also many other hardships and afflictions were used by God to actually make him better. And that's why Paul says there in in 2 Corinthians 12, Therefore I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For then I am weak. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So because that Lord, the Lord's discipline made him better, that's why you see the Apostle Paul thanking God. So sometimes God's discipline prevents our sin, but the, the last good purpose here is that God's discipline actually educates us for better service and better living. It actually educates us. I'm going to use Job as an example here. I saw a lot of people using Job as an example as I was studying this, and he seems to be a really good one here in in how God uses trials and hardships in our life. Sometimes God can actually get your attention better through affliction than through blessing you. You, you, you. you could probably give me, all of you could probably give me testimony of how that's true. And that's why uh, I'd recommend you read C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. 
the problem of pain, in that book, one of the many things that C.S. Lewis says is, he says, God shouts at you through your pain. He, he gets your attention. By God's own declaration in chapter 1, Job was a blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil kind of man. That's how God describes Job. So, and, and even though uh, he, he's that kind of person, we see God allowing him to suffer pain. He suffered a lot of loss, grief, sickness, ridicule. He lost all ten of his children. All ten of his children were killed. He lost an incredible amount of wealth. He lost his servants. He even had a nagging wife. Job's afflictions were all messengers of Satan, if you will, and came upon him, by the way, with God's approval. Satan had went to God and asked for approval to do that. And so Job went through his horrible sufferings, and the Bible says in chapter 2, he didn't sin with his lips. Now later on, he sins with his heart. At least at that point, he wasn't sinning with his lip, and so his lips. Sorry, and so Job's discipline here was clearly not for the other reasons, right? It wasn't because God was punishing him for his sin, although some of his friends were at least hinting, referring to that. It wasn't to prevent him from sin. Remember, God said he was blameless, and so it was sent to educate Job in the ways of God and the very character of. God, but he was not willing to accept his suffering. And so I think, what is it, 17 or 19 times in the book, Job asked, why? Why are you doing this to me, God? By the way, God never answered the why question. And so Job endured it, but he did not accept it until the end of the book, the very end of the book, after God gives some very long speeches, wonderful speeches, chapter 38, 39, chapter 40, right? And after those really long speeches, these lectures by God, he finally acknowledges that he did not need to know the reason behind everything that happened to him. And neither do you, by the way. And so he believed that God is sovereign, that God is omnipotent, that God is omniscient. And so what Job learned from his trials was not the reason. God never answered the why question, but What he did learn is that God is supremely great and marvelous. That's what he needed to know. He needed to know God. And so at the end of the book, in chapter 42, here's what Job says. He says, I have learned. Sit up, listen. Here's here's what he's learned through losing ten children and all of his wealth and suffering horrible pain and having a nagging wife. You want to know what he learned? He tells you. Because he says, I have learned things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he confesses to the Lord this. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, I know some things about you, God. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Wow. He learned his lesson. So the pain and the suffering and the hardship taught him and educated him. So you need to remember, as you're running this long-distance race, and when it gets hard, you need to remember, when the discipline comes, God has good purposes in it. There's some other things you need to know, though. As you're running, you need to remember God's Word. (laughs) You need to remember God's Word. That is our... That is our tendency to to forget. Because notice what verse 5 says. Verse 5 says, And have you forgotten? Apparently, some of the Hebrews had forgotten. They had forgotten an exhortation, which actually comes from Proverbs chapter 3. So, if if your Bible has... Verse part of verse 5 indented and looks different, that ought to tell you something. It's a quote from the Old Testament. <laughs> See, forgetfulness causes a lot of unnecessary problems and heartaches in our lives, just as it was doing for them. As they're enduring trials and hardships, some of them had forgotten the exhortation from Proverbs chapter 3. And so what does God do? He reminds the Hebrews what they had forgotten 
about God's discipline. You say, Pastor Scott, what's the point? What's the point? Well, suffering for God's sake is nothing new. Being disciplined by Him was not new. These believers, at least some of them, were upset about their afflictions, partly because they had forgotten God's Word. We get unrealistic expectations sometimes when we forget stuff. And sometimes we we feel entitled to not suffer, not have afflictions and trials. And so we get a little grumpy when God disciplines us. So it's important that we listen to God here. How do you listen to God? Because you're not going to hear an audible voice. If you do, it's not God. It was the anchovies on your pizza that you had. So it's important you listen to God. How do you do that? You turn to Scripture to listen to God. Because it's in Scripture you will find His Word. That's how God will speak to you. That is how you will remember God's Word. And that's why you need to be in God's Word, constantly reading it, constantly meditating about it, constantly memorizing it, so that you don't forget the exhortations. Well, what does a long-distance runner need to do and know? Number three, you need to listen to wise advice. You need to listen to wise advice. (laughs) Listen to the one who has told you to run with endurance. Because in verse 5, he says, again, quoting Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. So God's saying, hey, watch out for danger here. And God actually warns us of two dangers. Because when you're being disciplined, here's, here's two things. You will, you will tend to make excuses. And the first one God says here is don't ignore. Don't ignore. By the way, you're, for, for those of you who love Greek, the original language of your New Testament, you're going to find a lot of present active imperatives in this passage today. A lot of present active imperatives. It just means the present is, is, is continuing through your whole life. Active, you're doing this. An imperative is a command. There is one passive in this passage. But this isn't one of them. And so God says, don't ignore. In other words, in my Bible it says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Too many people choose to remain indifferent to God's work in their lives. They don't want to meditate upon what the trial might mean in their life. They, they make light of it. They blow it off, so to speak. They think it's better to not think about their hardships. That's painful sometimes. It's just better to ignore my hardship and, and kind of hope they'll go away. Why do people do that? God says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In other words, don't ignore it. Don't treat it lightly. Don't try to blow it away and, and sweep it under the rug and, and pretend it doesn't exist. Otherwise, you might have to do something about God's discipline if you think about it, right? That's why people don't want to think about it. They don't want to meditate upon it. Otherwise, I might have to do something. And if you're one of those people who tried to ignore God's discipline, you were just, you're just going to remain immature. You're going to be shallow. That's the problem with this. But there's a second danger. So listen to the wise advice from God here, because he says, don't give up. Don't give up. When he says, nor be weary when reproved by him. The idea is, don't give up. That's your temptation to give up when it gets hard. Now, this one is passive. The only one that's passive in the entire passage is it's passive. In other words, you can, you can, be, you can grow weary, and you, you, you get overcome by your weariness, and you grow tired. Well, this group here has allowed themselves to be overwhelmed by God's discipline. They're paralyzed by it, and some of them have stopped running their race. And so what does God do? He commands us here to keep running. Don't be overcome by your hardships. Now, either way, God's discipline here is not allowed to accomplish His purpose in us. 
if we're, if we're not following this wise advice, if we ignore or we give up, then, then God is not allowed to accomplish his purpose in us. And what happens is Satan actually becomes the victor, and God's purpose is lost, and our blessing is lost. So how do you keep running? How do you keep running? You have a long-distance race. I don't know how long the end is. I can't foresee that. I'm not a prophet. So what do you need? What do you need? You, you, you need some things to hold on to. You need some serious beliefs to hold on to here. And the next thing that God tells you here is, number four, believe that God loves you. So as you're in this endurance race, you might be tempted to think that God doesn't love you because he's disciplining you. By the way, the word discipline is, is this child training. It means child training. So, so as, as a child of God, you are being trained. You're being disciplined. He is doing a good work in you. And you need to recognize that he loves you. And so you say, well, man, how can I believe that God loves me? You know, that's really hard. Well, look at verse 6, because we see in verse 6 that God, a discipline actually proves that God loves you. The discipline proves that God loves you. Because look what verse 6 says. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so the first thing that we should think when we're suffering is our Father's love. So something hard happens in your life, you ought to praise God, thank you for loving me. <laughs> that's, that's what we should be thinking. And so we cannot prove this to anyone or even to ourselves except by faith. It's only going to happen by faith. You have to believe this by faith because faith proves it. Now here's how faith's logic works. Faith's logic believes that we are God's children that God loves his children, and God is bound by his own nature and his covenant and his promises to do us only good. Do you believe that? That's what faith thinks. That's what faith believes. And so therefore, whatever we receive then from God's hand, including trials and hardships and all afflictions, is, is happening to you because God loves you. You must believe that, my friend. But also, number two, discipline proves you're actually one of God's children. Discipline proves our sonship. So if you, even if you're a female gender, this includes you, by the way, because God says in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See, all people are subject to God's punishment as a result of sin, but, but only his children receive discipline. Think about it. At times we've all... Have you ever gone to the grocery store? Am I the only one who thinks this way? You go to the grocery store and someone else's child is throwing a temper tantrum, and you're thinking to yourself, give me just one week with that child, I'll sort him out. And then I'll send him back to his parents, because I don't want to keep him. He's not my child. Right? Am I the only one who thinks that way? Okay. All right. I thought so. But, but we, we sometimes we want to discipline other people's children when they disturb or irritate us. And so when we see this unruly child throwing the tantrum in the store, we're, we're thinking, hey, I, I can fix that, but I don't want to keep him because he's not my child. But we have no... Why is it? Because we have no continuing to dis desire to discipline children that don't belong to us. But those who do belong to us, we recognize we have a responsibility to our own children, the children whom God has given to us, right? And so we don't, we don't love other people's children as we love our own. The relationship's not the same, and therefore the concern, of course, is not going to be the same. How do you know God loves you? Because God disciplines you. Because that's what wise parents do to their children. They discipline their children. Notice I said 
Children, I said, wise parents discipline their children. And it shows that you're loved. So the next time you get a spanking, you say, thank you, Dad. I really appreciate your love for me. I never did that. I should have. But anyway. But you need to be an endurance runner. How are you going to stay in the race? Keep going all the way to the end. Well, here's number five. You need to experience God's work in you. See, God is up to something. And of course, it's good purposes, right? What is God up to? Well, look at verse 9. Because in verse 9, God says that he is trying to produce something in you. And in this case, verse 9, here it is. He says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? There's your key word. Live. See, God is producing life. He's producing life in you. A Christian's persistent rebellion against God's discipline can actually cost him his life. Isn't it interesting, in the Old Testament, God told parents, remember this, children, your parents shouldn't do this today, it doesn't apply for today, but in the Old Testament, if you were a rebellious child, your parents were supposed to take you outside the camp, or outside the walls, pick up big stones and kill you with big stones. It was called stoning. So a Christian's persistent rebellion against God's discipline can actually cost him his life. And God says so in places like 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul is speaking of believers as sleeping. Well, that's a nice way of saying they were dying. (laughs) Why were these people dying? Because they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Sometimes God kills people because of their sin. And sometimes the harvest includes physical life. But I, but wait on, wait, wait a moment here, friends, because there is much more to this than just physical life. God's not just saving your physical life. There is far more to this than just your physical life. The teaching here includes this idea that when we are subject to the Father, we're going to have a richer, more abundant life. Isn't that what Jesus said when he was on earth? I will give you in abundant life? See, you don't actually know what victory is until you've, you've been in the game, you've been in the race, you've been in a battle, and then when you actually experience it, then you know what it's really like. You don't know the meaning of freedom until you've been imprisoned. You don't know the meaning of joy, of, of relief, until you've suffered. You experience pain, and then when you don't have pain, you can, whoa, it's a vastly different situation, right? You don't know what it's like to be healed until you've actually been sick. You don't know what living is all about until you've experienced some problems and hardships and afflictions. And so, my friends, you need to ask, what is God up to? God wants to give you abundant life then you need to experience some hardship (laughs) and thank Him for it. But God's up to a second thing here. Number two, God is producing holiness. He's holy, and He calls us to be holy, to be distinct, to be unique, to be separate from His creation. And that's what He tells us in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. What's He up to here? that we may share His holiness. And so because God is perfect, therefore His discipline is always perfect. The Lord never makes mistakes with His children, like I've made with mine. Sometimes parents discipline their children, and maybe they got the wrong child. Or maybe their child didn't actually sin, and they disciplined them, and then, whoops, I made a mistake. Wrong child. Or, or, or the child didn't actually do something wrong, and I disciplined them. Parents make mistakes, but God never, he never does that. His discipline's always proper. It's always at the right time, in the right place, in the right manner, to the right degree. 
He never overdoes it. He never underdoes it. He gets it just right every single time. It's always perfect for our good. For what purpose? So you'll share His holiness. And so there's only one kind of holiness. It's not your version. It's God's version. It's God's holiness. You're sharing His holiness. And so he is, you need to remember, he is both the source and the measure. So he brings it to life. He's the birthing of it. And then he gets to choose how big and how long and the depth and all that good stuff. And so you say, well, what's the measure? Well, the, the measure is separation from sin. Be holy as he is holy. See, holiness can be confusing sometimes because it, it's similar to the word sanctification and there's actually two aspects of holiness. See, positionally, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, you're already holy in one sense because you were justified. When you were justified, you were, you were made right with God positionally and you became a son. But practically, you know you're still a sinner, right? You're not glorified yet. And so that's, this is why some people get, they, you know, they get it confused because they don't understand their doctrine. But practically, our holiness is just beginning here. And, and so God is working the sanctification in you where you're being set apart from your sin unto Him. God is making you holy. Praise God for that. But there's a second habit of endurance runners. Endurance runners, they have a certain mindset. They have this mindset that I'm going to cross the finish line and nothing is going to stop me except death. (laughs) That's the only thing. And even for the Apostle Paul, when you read the last book that he ever wrote and he gives his his grand testimony, his last will and testament in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I have finished my race. How does he know that? Because he's just about to have his head cut off by a big axe. As he's sitting in prison, he knows his race is going to end. So, my friends, here's the second habit of endurance runners. Run to finish the race. And God gives you lots of things that will help you to run to finish your race. And it's interesting, you see this in this language of of running, language here in verse 12, when God says, therefore, you endurance runners, here's what you need to do. I I can just hear my my endurance coach from high school yelling these things at me as I was running because I had some of these same problems. You, You run these endurance races, you get tired. And my endurance coach is saying, Lift your drooping hands, Scott. Strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Because as I was running and getting tired, you know the, the arms are just flailing around like a dying chicken who's just had his head cut off, right? It's kind of like what I felt like. The, the knees get weak and, oh, where's that finish line? I can't wait to get there. And so God says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The first thing that happens, I'm not a professional on this, but I've consulted those who know. But one of the first things, and I've experienced this when I've been doing these endurance challenges, that one of the first things that happens when a runner, when they start to get tired, is the arms start to drop. It, It gets difficult to hold them up and to keep them moving. The position and the motion of the arms are are actually extremely important in running. And you gotta maintain your proper body coordination in your rhythm. Your arms actually help you pull your legs. Did you know that? They they help you pull through your stride, and they're they're actually one of the first parts of your body that's going to show fatigue, and that's why God says this here. He understands. The second thing that's going to go is your knees. And so, first your arms begin to droop, and then your knees begin to wobble, and you know what happens in a long-distance race? If, if you're actually concentrating on your arms and your knees and, and you feel a bit wobbly and tired, you're in trouble. 
If you over-focus on those things, you need to focus on something else. God says, don't focus on that. The only way you can hope to continue the endurance race is by focusing on the goal, and God's already told us the goal at the beginning of chapter 12. For the Christian runner, your goal is Christ. He's already said, look to Christ so you can endure the race. Keep looking at Christ. And so there's a command right here that that is exhorting us to run the race and to finish the race. And we see, first of all, God saying, hey, keep running well. Don't give up. God says, make straight. Make straight paths for your feet in verse 13. Present active imperative, Greek. And this is so important in running. It's so important. If you're going to run a race well, God's saying you actually need to clear your path. You're going to need to remove some obstacles. You don't run well in an obstacle course. (laughs) You don't. You don't want any dangerous spots where you could twist your ankle or or you don't want something you could trip over. You don't want any rocks you can slip on. And so God is commanding all Christian runners here, clear your path in verse 13. Make straight your path for your feet. You say, what's the path he's referring to? I think he's referring to a moral path here, not a literal path, but a, a moral path of righteousness. That, that uh, a path that leads to righteousness. And so therefore, God wants you to arrange your life in such a way that sin's temptations are significantly reduced. There, there's no way you could get rid of them all. Okay? You, you can't get rid of them all. Things are going to pop up in your life, okay? You need to be ready for pop-ups. What are you going to do in that moment? But there's, there's things that, that are obvious that you can do something about. And God's saying, if you can do something with that rock or that obstacle, remove it. Make your path straight, clean, no obstacles. See, that's what endurance runners do. He went, the, the, those really fast guys in the 100-meter dash in the Olympics, you know, they're, they're, they're looking over the path, right? Nothing can be there to hinder them. Because you're talking 0.01 of a second difference sometimes between the guy who wins and the one who's in second. You say, well, what if I don't keep running well? What if I, uh, what if I don't take God's admonition here seriously? And, and what if I don't make straight paths for my feet? Then what? Look at verse 13. Because it says, make straight paths for your feet. That's a command. That's imperative. Here's why God tells you to do it. Look at verse 13. He says, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So, my friends, should you fail to clear the obstacles and the barriers and clear the path, you're not going to find healing. You're going to remain out of joint. Have you ever tried running with bones and ligaments and so forth out of joint? How well do you think you're going to do? That's painful. You don't want to do that. Rather than running straight after Jesus, what what sometimes we tend to do is we, we avoid accountability, we entertain our sin, we play around with it, we don't take it seriously, and the danger is we're never healed God says you're going to remain crippled in your sin, and eventually you keep doing that. The danger is you're going to turn away from Jesus, and you're going to stop the race. So my friend, please don't do that. Clear the path. Clear all the obstacles so that you can finish your race well. Keep running. So if you want to run to finish the race, number two, you have to... Pursue peace and holiness, God says. Pursue peace and holiness. You have to pursue it. That's what what it's saying there in verse 14. 
My Bible says strive for peace. Strive, pursue it. This is a call here from God to pursue peace. And it's a very important imperative. Because notice verse 14 doesn't tell you to achieve peace. It says what? You're to pursue peace. Strive for peace. So you may not be able to achieve peace. But Christians, you at least have to attempt and keep attempting because it's present tense. You have to continually keep doing this. Never give up. And there might be some people in your life. You've tried to make peace with them many years ago. And they brush you off and they make light of, light of it. God's saying, never give up on them. Keep pursuing them. It's your responsibility to pursue peace. Don't ever give up on them. Even if they've brushed you off and they've sworn at you and they've got angry with you, keep pursuing and striving after that dear brother and sister. And notice, you might make excuses here, but notice what God does. Who are you called to pursue? God says, everyone, everyone. You're not merely to just seek peace with someone in your family. You're not merely just in your church or your little circle or community or whatever that looks like. God says, with everyone. And then notice the next exhortation here. The Holy Spirit exhorts us to pursue not just peace, but holiness. And he warns a very serious warning. Because the goal, remember, the goal is the Lord. He's he's the goal. He's the finish. You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And since he's the goal, the only way you're going to get there is to pursue holiness. That's what God says. That's how serious this is. Because he says, no one is going to see the Lord without holiness. Holiness is required for the believer. Holiness is, is, by the way, it's not a mark of an unsaved person. Nor is it a mark of people who fall away and give up the race. The author is actually using the term holiness here to describe those who are pursuing the Lord. That's what holiness looks like. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. And this does not mean that those who run are perfect or sinless. You're never going to get there in this life. But it does mean that you're actually fighting sin. You're continually fighting sin. You are striving to live a faithful life to the Lord. And so, my friends, see how important this is. Because no one is going to see King Jesus without this kind of holiness. You must pursue it. Continually pursue it your entire life. Never give up on it. An endurance runner strives to finish the race. Nothing's going to stop them. But sometimes in endurance races, there's challenges along the way. And you might feel like stopping. And so notice God's exhortation here in verse 15 is to watch over one another. You need brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the same race as you to help you. And if you don't feel like you need help at the moment, there is someone who does need help. And so God says in verse 15, look at verse 15, He says, see to it, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's your responsibility. See, God wants you to care about other Christians. And He wants you to keep doing this your entire life. It's your responsibility because it's active. And so you're to guard the other runners in the race. Guard them. Protect them. Look out for your brother and sister. So what are we commanded to look for? Well, God actually tells you three things to look for here. As you're running this endurance race, number one, you look for grace. Look for grace. Believers should be vigilant that there's nobody in the community of faith, particularly in your local church, that will fail to receive the grace of God. In other words, the writer of Hebrews has already given a very serious warning a long time ago Don't allow people to drift away from the faith. When people take their eyes off Christ, God's saying it's your responsibility 
to help them get their eyes fixed back on Christ. Your responsibility. Uh, don't, don't say, well, that's the, you know, I'm, I'm going to put that onto the pastor. That's his responsibility. No, it's your responsibility. You're to help them get their eyes back on Christ. And so what is the author talking about here? The author's talking about this ongoing grace of God, which believers, by the way, experience through the means of grace. The means of grace include things like the preaching of God's Word and, and the, the, the practice of Christian discipline. He's already told us in chapter 10 to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but you're to meet together with your fellow runners in group hugs so that why? You can exhort one another to love and good works. You say, well, what's the point? You're called to care for each other so that you can actually grow in holiness and you can receive the grace of God so that you can finish the race. That's one of the things I love about races and these challenges is the camaraderie. Have you ever been in one? And you might you may have helped somebody or maybe you were struggling at some point and you got help from other people. That's one of the beautiful things of these things is they don't care so much about winning because most of them are way in the back like me and they're just happy to finish. And so they come along and help you however they can. It's beautiful. It should be that way in a church. And so you're to look for grace, God's grace here. But number two, look for bitterness. Look for bitterness. Because God says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So verse 15 is a warning. It's, it's warning the believers here to be on guard against the poison of bitterness. You say, well, what is bitterness? Well, <clears throat> bitterness is a state of intense resentment or hate. It's an intense hatred. Some people get, get angry with God in particular when they're being disciplined. <laughs> And so bitterness, you need to recognize, is a deadly poison. It's a sign of a very serious spiritual trouble in someone's life. It's the entrance to, to the way of sin. And the problem is, sometimes bitterness can come into an, an individual's life, and it's the entrance way into the church as well. And, and that bitterness can spread. It can rip the person apart. It can defile an entire church. It's very dangerous. And so God's saying, watch out. Be vigilant. And what do you watch for, by the way? Well, think of a plant. Because God's likening this to a plant. If you have a weed, don't just look for the part that's obvious, that you can see. God's saying, go for the root. You're looking for the part that's hidden. Under the ground, you're looking for the root of bitterness. Don't just go for the obvious signs. Go for the hidden ones. You've got to stop bitterness at its root. Stop it right there at the source before it spreads and defiles an entire church. It makes us unclean. There's a third thing here that endurance runners need to look for. You need to look for sexual sin. Verse 16 says that no one is sexually immoral. Look for sexual sin. Be on guard against immoral people. See, we live in a day that is apathetic towards sexual sin. It's pretty much accepted, right? Sexual sin is normal in our day and age. And many people think that sexual sin doesn't matter as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. You ever heard that? As long as it doesn't hurt anybody. They can do whatever they want. They can have as many partners as they want. They can cross over sexual lines and, and gender lines and, and do whatever they want. As long as they're not hurting me, I don't care. A lot of people think that way. But look what God says here in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. He says, 
flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So let me ask you, my friend, does sexual sin hurt people? According to God, who made all people, the answer is yes. It actually defiles that sinner's body. It violates the law of God, so it's hurting them and God, and as a result, it hurts the body of Christ as well. So do you see here, my friends, how God actually loves us? By giving us boundaries and putting up fences? God's not just some mean ogre going around saying, you know, don't commit fornication and don't commit adultery and don't, you know, don't do this because he hates you. He does it because he loves you. He loves us so much that he puts up these fences to protect us. And so, my friend, please protect yourself, protect others. Look out for these things as you're running. Help protect that immoral person who's trying to destroy God's good ways. Well, God goes on to to help us here to to run this race well and to finish. And one of the things an endurance runner does is you avoid bad examples. That's the fourth thing God tells us here. You want to run and finish the race well? You don't look at the bad examples. (laughs) There are some people who don't know how to run. Don't look at the the person who's, you know, the the flailing arms and weak knees and and, and is falling. And and the example that God gives to you here is Esau, of all the people that God could have picked. He picks Esau in verse 16. When he says, he talks about this unholy person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. (laughs) So Esau is a tragic example of an endurance runner. He failed. He didn't finish the race. I'm not sure he even started, to be frank. So his example here is meant to actually encourage you, not discourage you. So you say, well, how does it encourage me? Well, it's sometimes bad examples are encouraging. They they help us, oh, man, don't do that, right? I'm going to do the opposite of what that dude just did. That's what you need to do. You see, in the book of Genesis, God tells us, that Esau was godless or unholy because, why? He traded his birthright for one meal simply because he was hangry. So hungry. So for Esau, his physical appetite was more important to him than the birthright that belonged to him as Isaac's firstborn son. He traded it away to his brother Jacob, and in the process, what did he do? He's demonstrating this disinterest for the holy things of God. That's why God picks him here, is the illustration. And so these Hebrews appropriately, the book of Hebrews appropriately identifies Esau here as unholy, he is irreverent, unfaithful, and he is unworthy of our imitation. That's why he's not in the hall of faith of chapter 11. Avoid bad examples like Esau. So why does the author regard the selling of a birthright as an unholy thing? You say, well, that doesn't sound that bad to me. Well, Esau's privileged position here actually designated him as the one who was to bear the responsibility of his whole family. He was supposed to carry his father's name. There was a role that he was supposed to play as uh, after his father Isaac died. He was supposed to become the patriarch. And so having that kind of an honor and a privilege was a direct result of God's sovereign choice. God's the one who sovereignly chose who was the firstborn. The Bible tells us that. And so, therefore, what Esau did was actually unthinkable. It was a crime, not only against his father and his family, but it was a crime against the sovereign God. It was an insult against God. Because God was the one who bestowed the birthrights. So sadly, he committed this offense, and he did it willingly. He did not give it up by force. He let the appetite of his belly lead him into this very serious offense against God. 
So my friends, what do endurance runners do? Don't look at bad examples. Look to Christ. See, he's already finished his race. Look to those people in chapter 11. They're the kind of examples you need to look to. See, Esau's story is is a bad one, and it actually continues on into verse 17. And here's the last point you need to remember. To be a good endurance runner, you need to heed God's warning. Heed God's warning. Because verse 17 says this about Esau, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So, remember, he already traded away his birthright for a, a simple bowl of stew. I hope it was good. Because he lost way more than he gained. And so Esau longed to receive the blessing of, of, of the firstborn from his father. And if you remember the story in Genesis, Jacob deceives his father into getting the firstborn blessing. Remember he the whole rigmarole, I hope you remember that. And so Esau didn't receive the firstborn blessing. Instead, Jacob does. And so when Esau actually learns of the blessing that he had lost to his own brother, what did he, what did he do? He goes to his father and he, he's bitterly begging his father to bless him. And he didn't get what he wanted. The original blessing could not be revoked by Isaac. You say, well, what's the point that God's making here? Well, Esau stands as an example here of somebody who regrets what he's done, but notice God says that the regret didn't lead to repentance. He didn't repent of his wrongdoing. He didn't repent of his sin. You say, well, what's repentance then? Well, it's not crying. It's not water coming out of your eyeballs. See, you can cry and not be repentant. Somebody who's repentant does a 180. They turn from their sin, and they turn to God. The problem is, Esau never did that. And so there's a crucial difference here between the regret and the repentance. God never rejects true repentance, by the way. If Esau had truly repented, God would have accepted that repentance, but Esau never did that. He had no interest in that. It was a worldly regret that you see him in his life. And so Esau doesn't respond in a way that's actually communicating genuine repentance over his sin. He's just simply regretting that he's lost something that he wanted. It's not repentance that Esau seeks here with his tears. It's only what he has lost. True repentance, my friend, requires a hatred of your sin. You, you, you have to turn from that, but it's more than that. Then you have to turn to God. Tears alone do not signal repentance. There are many people out there, maybe you, who could be brokenhearted over your sin, but you don't repent. You don't agree with God about what your sin is. They, they don't understand that the sin is actually demonstrating a need for Jesus. You need a Savior. You need someone who's bore your sin. And so they may show regret. You might cry. You, you might regret something, but they're unwilling to repent. And so this is the warning the author here is presenting to you. And he uses Esau as the example. And and by drawing our attention to Esau, the writer of Hebrews is presenting to you two options. And that's why I put a huge, big question mark on the screen. Because you have a you have a question to consider today from this passage. You have two options. You can, number one, you can follow the example of all those people in chapter eleven, and you can follow the example of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and he finished the mission that God had given to him. You can keep running faithfully all the way to the end. That's option one. Or option two, you can follow the example of Esau. Which option are you going to pick? Which choice will you make, my friends? And by the way, you say, well, I'm just going to sit on the fence. 
and do nothing here because, you know, I, you know, I don't like conflict. I don't like making decisions. You know, I'm, I'm just one of those kind of people. By not making a decision, you're making a decision. And it's not a good one. You need to make the right choice. So, my friend, you must follow, no, sorry, you must follow Christ. You must have your eyes fixed on him. You must not follow the example of Esau. It's not a good one. Avoid it. It's disastrous. Instead, my friend, you have to heed God's warning here. You have to run the race with faithfulness and endurance. Will you? Will you join the great hall of faith? Will you follow Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful passage, this very helpful passage, because we are all in a race. And it's long, it's hard, it's difficult. We, we face trials and hardships and afflictions and suffering and all these things. And so may we really believe that you love us. May we trust in you. May we have our eyes fixed on Christ as we're running. Forgive us when we take our eyes off Christ and we get distracted. Forgive us when we stumble and we fall. So may we look to our brothers and sisters as well to help lift us up, help bear our burdens. May we run together, not alone, but together. May we encourage one another toward love and good works. So we, we, we recognize we need your grace. May we not fail of the grace of God as we're running. We need it. Can't do it without you. With Christ, we can do all things. Would you enable us to finish the race well? To one day hear those glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Make us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.